Hi, Homecoming listeners. Thank you so much for tuning back into the podcast. For those of you who may be listening to Homecoming for the first time, welcome. Homecoming is a podcast that provides the space for people who identify as Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander to share their diverse stories, experiences, and insights about everything from international politics to interracial solidarity. And before I dive into the content of the episode today, I just wanted to say that I hope all of you guys are doing okay out there, um, staying safe and healthy, and I hope also that you and your friends and loved ones are continuing to wear masks. Uh, Please wear a mask. I mean, seriously, at the rate that COVID-19 is growing in the U.S. right now. Something that can seem so small or inconvenient can really help save a life and ensure that not as many people get the virus. So definitely make sure to do that whenever you go outside. Um, I also wanted to say that I really hope you all are continuing to have conversations and um, learning about race and racism and anti-blackness and solidarity, because I know that I've certainly seen a drop in coverage of Black Lives Matter protests around the country, um, but I know they're still happening out there, and I think it's really important that we keep advocating for racial justice, um, reparations for people to vote and learning more about the US police system and its flaws. And, you know, just even thinking about how we can be better allies to BIPOCs in our own communities and standing up for them whenever they're getting bullied or made fun of. Um, And also just making sure that we're not gaslighting them or othering them in in condescending ways. So um, yeah, we definitely can't and shouldn't let our learning and growing stop here just because the social media and news waves have subsided. Um, Actually, something that I've been doing lately is watching Hassan Minhaj's Patriot Act, which is a show on Netflix, but there are free episodes on YouTube and that's where I've been watching them. But um, in Patriot Act, he covers so many different topics from the American policing system, which was super informative for me, um, to Indian elections, to affirmative action, to Supreme, the brand. So I definitely encourage you all to check Patriot Act out and let me know if you ever want to have a conversation about any of the issues he covers on the show because I'd love to and and everything he talks about um, on Patriot Act is super fascinating. Uh, But yeah, please don't stop advocating, protesting and learning but also make sure you're staying safe and healthy and maintaining your um, mental and emotional health. Um, But moving on to today's episode, episode 14. So some of you may know that June was LGBTQ or lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer pride month. And it's traditionally celebrated in June to commemorate the Stonewall riots, which occurred at the end of June, 1969. And for people uh, who are not familiar with the Stonewall riots, um, they're also known as the Stonewall Uprising or the Stonewall Rebellion. Um, There's basically this gay bar uh, in the Greenwich Village neighborhood of Manhattan, New York City uh, called Stonewall Inn. And on June 28th, 1969, New York City police raided that bar and first arrested 13 people for violating New York's gender appropriate clothing statute. And the angry patrons and neighborhood residents were basically just so fed up with the constant police harassment and social discrimination that was occurring um, at that time. And so at one point, an officer hit someone over the head and forced her into his uh, police van. And so onlookers began to throw objects at the police and all of that started this full-blown riot um, that involved hundreds of people and lasted for more than five days. And um, that is definitely a very simplified version of the Stonewall riots. And this event was certainly just one out of many in the LGBTQ rights movement. So I definitely encourage all of you listeners to read and watch movies and videos about the history of the um, American gay rights movement and the LGBTQ movements in other countries as well. Um, And I will definitely post resources in the episode description and on the homecoming social media platforms when this episode releases. 
And I know that people might say, Angelina, it's August, um, you're way past due for Pride Month. And I guess to that, I say, why limit our celebration and support to LGBTQ people and to the LGBTQ rights movement to just the month of June, right? Like I've had queer guests on this podcast before and I'm definitely not gonna stop my support. I'm not gonna stop uplifting LGBTQ people or not stop giving them the space to speak about their experiences on homecoming. Um, yeah, sorry, that, that was a very long spiel and a lot of me talking, but I'm sure all of you want to know more about my amazing guest for today. So today, Abix Arkar is joining me on Homecoming to talk about queerness, coming out, what it's like to be a South Asian queer person, LGBTQ advocacy, and a lot more. So Avik, first, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super excited to have you on. And I admit that actually, like after our meeting yesterday, I was even more looking forward to this episode because you, I feel like you just have a lot to say. And I'm just super excited to give you this platform to share your perspectives and your experiences. Um, and, you know, I, I know that talking about one's LGBTQ identity um, and sexuality can be super sensitive, especially when you're doing it on such a public platform like a podcast. So I really, really thank you for being willing to do this and coming on to the podcast and um, talking with me and sharing who you are. Yeah. And thank you for giving me the space. I really appreciate it. Of course. I'm super excited. So First, before we get into any of the questions, um, would you mind just introducing yourself to the listeners? Um, you know, you can mention your name, pronouns, where you go to school, where you're from, what organizations you're a part of on campus, off campus, um, other parts of your identity that you're comfortable sharing, really anything you want. Great. Um, so I'm Avik. Um, I am a rising sophomore at Yale. I'm very much undecided about my major, which is concerning, but I'm thinking about um, ethnic studies or gender and sexuality studies. Um, I go by any and all pronouns. And uh, my parents are Bengali um, immigrants from India. So um, being Bengali and uh, being South Asian more generally um, has been a really part, important part of my identity and um, my experience. Um, and so I'm really excited to talk about that today. Um, besides that, on campus, um, I'm involved in a couple of different kind of organizations and initiatives. I am involved with um, various different things at the Asian American Cultural Center at Yale, um, as well as with the um, LGBTQ Cooperative. Um, and uh, apart from that, I also do work with um, IRIS, which is Integrated um, Refugee and Immigrant Services of New Haven, which is a refugee resettlement agency um, and works closely with the um, refugee and immigrant um, communities of New Haven. And I also um, work with VITA, which is um, Volunteer Income Tax Assistance. So it's just um, helping New Haven residents prepare their taxes. Amazing, thank you. So we've definitely got a lot to cover today, so I'm just going to jump right in. Um, the first thing I want to do, though, is like pass you the mic and allow you to talk more about your um, queer identity. So would you mind sharing when you became aware of your queer identity? Um, and I know that when we were talking about talking to each other yesterday, you mentioned that you don't necessarily have like a one time coming out story per se. Um, but would you be able to share a little bit uh, more about your experiences as a queer person growing up in Boston and how you felt about your queerness growing up? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I would say that I had a quote unquote um, atypical, let's say, um, coming out story just because I don't think I can identify um, a specific moment at which I came out as gay or as queer or as not straight for that matter. Um, and I think that having that experience has taught me a lot about um, the sort of flaws of the 
coming out narrative that we're so used to and accustomed to, because I think in many ways it can reinforce um, a heteronormative and cisnormative understanding of sexuality and gender. This idea that um, queer and trans people are straight until they come out as um, queer or that they're cis until they come out as trans. Um, and I found in my experience that hasn't been the case because, um, you know, as young as seven, I was wearing my grandmother's bangles and saris and I'm already deviating from kind of gender um, norms and expectations. Um, and by middle school, um, my peers were using, you know, anti-gay slurs when they were describing me. Um, and so I think given all of those experiences, it's, it's hard for me to say that I had a coming out moment because I think that queerness has always been a part of my life. Um, that's why I don't think that there's been any particular instance in which I've said, um, which I, in which I've announced to someone who doesn't already know that I identify with queerness. And if you're comfortable sharing, how do you feel like your various family members or friends sort of perceived your queer identity as you were growing up? Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say that I have really supportive parents and family members more generally, um, which I think often surprises people because um, we are there there's a sort of very racist belief that um immigrant families um oftentimes asian families south asian families are not supportive of queerness or queer identities um and i found the very opposite to be true in my experience um i am very um sort of open and honest with you know all aspects of what it means to be queer um with many of my family members and relatives. Awesome, yeah, thank you. Yeah, and actually what you just mentioned reminded me um, to really emphasize that I think, I was telling you this yesterday, like I'm really trying to steer away from making very broad generalizations across the entire LGBTQ community. And I really wanna to emphasize to the listeners also that um, what Avik is sharing is his own experience and you know, it's not necessarily represented, representative of every single um, LGBTQ person out there. So just wanted to say that, um, forgot to mention that earlier. Um, but yeah, you were kind of talking about this earlier, but I was just wondering when you were growing up and even right now in the present day, did you slash do you feel pressured to put a label on your sexuality and your gender? Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's um, a pressure that many queer and trans people face, just because I think we are very um, kind of used to the idea that genders and sexualities can be organized into these neat categories of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer. Um, and I think that for me, um, there has just been so many problems with the system of labels um, for on multiple levels and for multiple reasons, right? I mean, I think at the most basic level, and we've all, you know, we're very also used to this argument about labels that, you know, they, they restrict our sort of experiences um, by forcing us to name them and fit them into these categories. That I think is a very valid argument, but I think there's more to be said also, um, because I think what we lose sight of often is that um, genders and sexualities, and more specifically the terms that we use to describe them, are social constructs. You know, they're, these are languages and vocabularies that people have developed to describe um, their identities and their subjectivities. Um, and there is a power to that. There is a power to saying, I am gay, I am queer. Um, but I think what's important to lose sight of, uh, important not to lose sight of rather, um, is that these terms, these words, are very narrow. They um, often don't do a very good job of capturing what people feel about their experiences 
um, with pleasure and with intimacy, um, but also with their politics. Um, you know, like the term gay um, says more about um, a person's sexuality and sexual attraction to others, which is of course an important part of, um, in many cases, an important part of one's identity, but it says very little about what kind of politics they pursue, you know? And so I think that's where the term queer has been um, more useful for me as a kind of very loose label in thinking not only about who I am in terms of my sexuality, but also in terms of my politics. Yes, definitely. I totally agree with what you just said. I think I've lately been thinking a lot about the fact that we as a society have such a great tendency and need to like put labels on everything and define everything and define people and like groups of people and objects. And I don't know, like, I've just been wondering, like, why do we feel this need to define and like limit our identities to these, like you said, like these social constructs. And like, I, like you said, like, I totally get that words can be very powerful but at the same time like they are only one facet of our identity and also there are so many different connotations to certain words that you might not identify with but yeah that's that's definitely been something that i've been thinking a lot about definitely and i think um this isn't a fully formed thought but i think something to consider there is that oftentimes the the creation and the construction and the continued usage of terms and labels is really in many cases a way of maintaining power right like we can see this in um, not only the social construction of gender and sexuality but also in the social construction of race you know the racial other has to be created um, in order to give power to whiteness, you know, in the same way that the queer um, has to be created um, in order to preserve the power and the legitimacy of what is considered quote unquote normal, you know? So I think it's like, as much as these terms, like you said, um, and like I noted before, like as much as these terms can be really useful in sort of like organizing people into communities, um, which can be helpful for, you know, building movements and mobilizing. Um, we also have to keep in mind where these words come from and their origins. 100%. Yeah, there are definitely pros and cons to certain labels um, and words when we use them to describe our identities. So, yeah, definitely encouraging people to think a little more deeply about that. Um, and another thing that I wanted to emphasize is how important so many LGBTQ activists and pioneers and trailblazers have been to the LGBTQ rights movement, um, starting sort of from the 20th century. And like, even before that, um, you know, when I was doing research for this episode, I came across Gladys Bentley, James Baldwin, Marsha P. Johnson, um, Sylvia Rivera, Harvey Milk, and just so many more activists um so like what i found really especially is like seeing how black lgbtq people have paved the way for so many people out there to sort of embrace their sexuality and their lgbtq identity um so i definitely want to emphasize that um but i think that for us asians we maybe haven't seen as many prominent Asian American queer activists um, in the 20th century. But I guess like we certainly see some people nowadays, like some that I'm thinking about are uh, Cecilia Chung. Um, she came to um, Yale to speak earlier this year. Um, I also can think of Eugene Lee Yang and Kim Koko Iwamoto, but really like when I was doing research for this episode, I couldn't come, I, I couldn't find that many Asian American queer activists. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in, in knowing more about when you were growing up, did you have any QTPOC um, activists or, you know, in general, any LGBTQ activists whom you really look up, looked up to or 
who have played a really large role in the formation of your queer identity and also maybe how you view your queer identity and your racial identity in tandem. Definitely. And I would say that um, a lot of the um, sort of queer activists and organizers and thinkers who have been kind of really fundamental to my thinking, but also just who I am as a person, are people that um, you mentioned, like James Baldwin and um, Marsha P. Johnson. Um, and I think that it's so critical to um, always keep in mind the um, interventions and, and contributions of um, Black trans women um, and Black and Brown queer and trans people um, when we're thinking about um, what it means to um, create a queer movement both throughout history and in our sort of current moment. Because I think like looking back at that history and looking at those kind of writings and movements um, helps us to think through a lot of the kind of crises that are plaguing um, modern mainstream LGBTQ um, activism, right? Because first of all, um, it is extremely white um, and centered around whiteness. Um, and so when we think about, you know, the contributions of black and brown trans women, um, you know, in moments like Stonewall and many others, we remember that um, the intersections of race, gender, and sexuality are not something that people are just suddenly thinking about, but have, you know, been really critical um, to the kind of organization of, of queer um, liberation movements. I think the other thing to keep in mind there too, um, and this is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, is that um, that thinking about the um, interventions of, of uh, black and brown queer and trans people also helps us see the kinds of limitations to the demands that we're making um, as um, or that are being made by mainstream LGBT movements today, right? Like, I think a really good example is um, Stonewall and its relationship to policing. Like, like you said in the um, introduction to, to this episode, um, Stonewall was um, an act of resistance against the police in New York. Um, it was, you know, meant to oppose the policing of, of black and brown um, queer and trans bodies. Um, and so if we like kind of jump forward to where we are today, it's very different. Like we're seeing that like white LGBT organizers are not only not seeing any problems with, but also like actively asking for police presence at pride, you know, and at other kind of marches and events. And so we're seeing that it's like this huge departure from like a radical um, critique of, you know, police and the oppression that the police introduces um, in the lives of, of queer and trans people. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think QTPOCs, like they're at the intersection of so many different identities. So I think it's really interesting to think about how QTPOCs have such different perspectives and experiences than white LGBTQ people. Um, I was also wondering, um, in your opinion, how do you feel like your queer identity and your race, your, your South Asian-ness as well, connect to one another and work together and play off of one another? For sure. I mean, that's a, that's a really great question, I think. It's something I've been um, reflecting on a lot recently. Um, just what it means to exist as, you know, a brown queer person, um, as a South Asian queer person. And I think a lot of that um, kind of subconsciously over the years, and I've been trying to do this more consciously um, recently, has been engaging with histories of um, queer and trans um, communities in South Asia. Um, so one um, thing that is really important to me is keeping in mind that um, the erasure and the sort of marginalization of 
um, queer and trans people in South Asia, and this applies to many other um, former colonies as well, um, is really in many ways, in most ways, um, a direct result of colonial domination um, and exploitation. Um, so I think uh, like the um, example that people often turn to when thinking about um, trans identities in South Asia today are hijra communities who are um, communities living in South Asia um, of people who deviate from binary models of gender and um, often engage in sex work, um, are often experiencing um, poverty and homelessness are, and are otherwise in many ways um, marginalized from the rest of um, South Asian society. And I think it's so critical to keep in mind that um, the oppression of hijras in South Asia really began with the arrival of British colonial power and all of these kinds of laws that outlawed um, you know, trans people and trans identities um, and created all of these structures that were meant to hold um, in place uh, colonial Western ideas of gender. And so if we kind of, you know, trace the legacies of that history into our moment today, we can see that, you know, the, the marginalization of um, hijras in um, South Asian society is not at all um, out of the blue. And it's also not um, as many white Western LGBT activists will try to argue, it's also not a marker of the sort of backwardness, quote unquote, of South Asian societies. It is an artifact um, from colonial times that has just persisted. And I think it's really um, been important for me as I'm thinking about my identity as a South Asian person and as a queer person to think about how those different um, sort of lineages have intersected in very um, complicated ways. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, I found when I was looking into different histories uh, before this episode, I realized that when I looked up, for example, like queer Asian activists or something like that, I often found mostly East Asian uh, people who yeah, just East Asian people, and I didn't find that many South Asian queer activists. So how do you feel like um, South Asians who have historically defined as queer um, has impacted the way that queerness is viewed by uh, South Asians and within the South Asian diaspora, if that makes sense? Definitely. Um... I would say that a lot of those colonial ideas surrounding um, gender and sexuality have very unfortunately persisted both in modern South Asia and across the diaspora, you know? So like returning to the comment I made earlier about coming out as um, LGBTQ, um, in South Asian families, um, I think that in many cases, um, young queer South Asian people um, feel um, a sense of tension there because of the legacies of um, these ideas that have really truly just been passed down um, from imperial power. Um, and I think what is especially ironic and again unfortunate is that so many movements for liberation from colonialism and imperialism have resorted to the same very problematic ideas about gender and sexuality. Um, we can see this in like so many of the um, anti-colonial um, resistance movements of um, South Asia in the 20th century um, and you know trickling down into um, various kinds of Hindu nationalism um, in the present moment, so much of this relies on um, preserving this like 
coveted Hindu masculinity, you know, and like obviously coded into that is also this expectation that, um, you know, the normal, quote unquote, um, good South Asian citizen is also straight and cis. Um, and I think that these movements and their reliance on these, um, you know, colonial ideas of gender and sexuality um, has made it really difficult for queer and trans people to exist in South Asia and across the diaspora. Yeah, I think the history that you're mentioning of, of imperialism and, and just like power dynamics in general is really important to look into and dissect because I think it is pretty fascinating to think about the way, like how we orient specific parts of our identity to larger hierarchies and power dynamics like you were talking about. Um, Yeah. And kind of going back to your own personal story, um, were you involved in any LGBTQ advocacy groups or organizations uh, before you came to Yale, like in high school, for example? And are there any in particular that you're involved with at Yale right now that you'd like to speak about? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think my sort of involvement in queer spaces has always been a source of tension for me, um, existing as a brown queer person. Um, Because I think I found like in high school, for example, um, I mean, first of all, the GSA Gay Straight Alliance at my high school was tiny. It was like seven people, um, all of whom were white except me. Um, And so it just, you know, it couldn't be more clear to me that their sort of concerns and interests were so very different from mine, you know, that their um, sort of what they saw as uh, relevant to um, their work as a LGBT organization was just totally different from what I thought was, you know, and like when I, for example, suggested that they, you know, form coalitions with um, the feminist group on um, at my high school, as well as um, the group for Black and Brown students, um, they didn't sort of see how um, those different politics um, could align and work together. Um, that I think has definitely changed at Yale to a certain extent. I would say that it's been somewhat disappointing to see that spaces like the Office of LGBT Resources um, are while trying to offer, um, you know, support to students who um, come from a wide range of, um, you know, experiences of queerness, really ends up favoring um, white, upper class, gay and lesbian students. Actually, I think I can even constrict that to say gay students. Like, it really just is... um, white, cis, upper-class gay men who dominate um, in that space. And I would say within the sort of like what we imagine as the queer community of Yale in general. Um, And so that has been difficult for me just because um, it is what I sort of was facing to a large degree in high school. Um, I will say though that finding spaces like the Asian American Cultural Center and groups like Queer and Asian, which, you know, as the name suggests, is um, a group specifically for queer, um, Asian and Asian American and Pacific Islander students. um, Those have been really transformative spaces for me, I think, because it's provided this much needed escape from the very overwhelming whiteness of what it means to be queer elsewhere on campus. Thank you. Yeah, can you, would you be able to give some more examples of how um, maybe the Office of LGBTQ Resources, like you were talking about, how they were very narrowly, uh, thinking about a very narrow group, like what are some like examples, events, initiatives that you took on that, that you feel like you weren't 
feeling comfortable in and other people of color who identified as LGBTQ did not feel comfortable with? Um, I would say that there have been many moments, but to sort of tie it into what we were talking about before about coming out, I think that one thing that has made me, you know, particularly uncomfortable and also just like very frustrated um, in um, spaces like that. And I don't want to, you know, imply that this is in any way specific to the office of LGBT resources. Like this is, this extends far beyond that. And it's just kind of like a general um, trend in um, Yale's queer community. I should say Yale's white queer community. Um, is this just total um, lack of recognition of the ways in which race and sexuality and gender intersect, right? And it's like, I think like, you know, a specific way that that's like played out for me is like having these very awkward conversations where people just really <laughs> struggle to wrap their uh, minds around the fact that I am completely out to my parents. And not only that, but I'm also like very open and talking about, you know, my um, experiences, um, living as a queer person, you know, in college and, and not at college and wherever. Um, and so I think that, you know, this, this idea that um, BIPOC are just like, you know, to put it like really crudely are just like backward and not understanding of queerness um, just really limits the, um, the, the safety and comfort um, that I, um, you know, as like a brown queer person have felt in those spaces. Um, and I think it like, it manifests in many other different ways too, like racial preferences and dating and hookup culture, for example, you know, like these are conversations that we don't have enough in, within the queer community because we um, have somehow imagined that um, racism is not an issue that, you know, warrants discussion um, once we enter queer spaces. Um, and so that's something that's been kind of deeply frustrating for me. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for um, diving deeper into that. Um, I also was wondering, okay, you briefly touched um, on this when you were talking about the sort of experiences you had in high school versus uh, at Yale with LGBTQ advocacy. But after you went to Yale and, and came to college slash university, like, did you have any new knowledge or perspectives on your queer identity? For sure, yeah. Um, I think the thing that really changed for me after coming to Yale was no longer identifying as gay, which I did before. Um, and now identifying as queer and specifically with um, a radical queer politics. Um, and I think that has been um, the result of both being surrounded by people who um, kind of share that vision and also learning more about what queer just as a term and as um, a politics means in academic spaces, like, you know, like taking classes in, in uh, women's gender and sexuality studies. Um, and I think to be more specific there, I think the difference for me is realizing that um, so much of um, what I thought it meant to be LGBTQ before coming to Yale was about inclusion and representation. You know, it was about um, seeing myself represented um, in all kinds of different spaces. Um, and I am increasingly realizing the sort of very problematic consequences of having that as my goal. You know, because to begin with, um, most queer representation is white queer people. Um, that we, you know, is, is very much um, clear to me and to um, most black and brown um, queer and trans people. But I think the other thing is that um, when we're asking for inclusion, we're stopping short of a much more um, sort of capacious and broad vision of 
what liberation means for queer people, right? Like, I think like a classic example of this that I really um, was introduced to in um, my classes was the idea of gay marriage. Um, and this notion that, um, you know, the ultimate uh, LGBTQ liberation is the right to marry. And then, you know, realizing that A, marriage is a heteronormative institution. It's, you know, and so when we're asking for that, we're asking to be folded into something that is, um, you know, catering to uh, the interests of heteronormativity. And B, um, for many, if not most queer people, um, especially Black, um, queer, and trans people, marriage is not um, a priority. You know, the right to marriage is secondary to, um, you know, not being policed, um, being able to present as queer or trans in public. I mean, these are questions of safety and, you know, security from violence and, um, and terror that, you know, really are not going to be solved by um, achieving equal rights when it comes to marriage. So I think like that has been really important to me because I realized that um, when in terms of my own identity, like when I was identifying as gay, that was, you know, sort of containing me within a very limited politics, um, a very mainstream white politics. Um, and I think I'm trying to push myself in more radical directions with, you know, terms like queer. Um, but that's really just like, you know, sort of the foundation of it all. For sure. Yeah. And something else that I've been thinking about too is media representation of minority people like BIPOCs or um, LGBTQ people. And I think media representation is super important because I think when, you know, like LGBTQ people may, who are maybe afraid of coming out or who are questioning their sexuality when like potentially they see queer entertainers and athletes and writers and directors and um, news reporters, like they begin to feel more comfortable possibly. And I like can't say that from my own experience, but I am thinking like, for example, um, with like racial minorities, with BIPOC people, like when, when we see Asians um, and Black people and Latinx um, people who are actors and entertainers and like on our screens, um, like I personally feel more comfortable and I, and I feel more accepting of certain parts of my identity. Um, so in your opinion, how important is it to have QTPOC representation in media? And also, how do you feel like media representation of LGBTQ people has changed over the years? Um, and in what ways could it maybe do better? Yeah. Um, I guess I'll admit that I feel very conflicted on the question of representation um, because I think like you're saying, I think representation can be really powerful. I think that, um, you know, in the simplest terms, like seeing someone who, um, identifies in the same way as you, you know, in um, movies or on TV or in music and entertainment can be very powerful. Um, I think it can be a source of affirmation for, like you're saying, um, Black and Brown people, um, for definitely for queer people um, who are still struggling with their um, gender and um, sexual identities. That being said, um, I think the place where we need to be careful when we're talking about representation is it's not enough just to have, say, an Asian character or a gay character. For me, the next question is, what kind of um, politics are they representing? You know, like what what is their um, particular experience of Asianness or of queerness, you know? So it's like, I, I'm struggling to think of specifically 
um, you know, like a queer South Asian person um, here who, you know, has been represented in mainstream media. Um, but maybe, you know, a, a good example to think about is Never Have I Ever, you know, the um, Netflix series um, that Mindy Kaling recently released on Netflix. And on the one hand, I get the arguments that people are making about South Asian representation. And I think that, you know, especially if this were like um, me when I was younger, it would have been, you know, a source of great um, just affirmation to see that um, South Asian people um, and families were being represented on screen. But then now that, you know, I am, you know, looking back on those kinds of thoughts, I'm wondering like, what are we missing here? You know, like what, what is, what are the flaws of something like Never Have I Ever? And I'm thinking of all the problematic um, stereotypes that it doesn't challenge about South Asian communities and various other communities as well. Um, I'm thinking of like one particular moment um, when one of the characters compares arranged marriage to enslavement, for example. And so obviously that's a problematic um, comparison, extremely problematic comparison to begin with. And also it just totally misses the intricacies of what um, arranged marriage looks like. So I, I went in too much into the details of that example, but I think what it shows is that it's not just enough to have South Asians on the screen. Like it's like, how are they being represented? What are they being portrayed as? What kinds of political visions are they supporting? Are they supporting any politics at all, you know? So like, I, I think that's where like the question of representation does get a little tricky for me, but at the most fundamental level, I think it's about um, not only having people of certain identities, but also people with um, certain politics. No, for sure. I definitely agree with you. I think, like you said, it, it's great to have someone who looks like us on the screen, but also what are you doing after that, right? Like, I think in many cases, directors and producers feel like they have to box BIPOC people or queer people into certain labels and, and boxes, you know, and certain stereotypes and like have them conform to certain stereotypes of what it, what it means or it should look like to be Asian, Black, um, queer. And yeah, I definitely agree. And, and something that you were saying reminded me of how I feel like a lot of queer entertainers that I see on the screen and like on social media are very bold and very proud, but not everyone is like that. And I feel like that in and of itself can sort of, it can be intimidating, I guess, to feel like you have to conform and be like that, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think that those kinds of approaches to um, queer representation and racial representation also lead to the problem of tokenizing, right? Which I think resonates with a lot of what you're saying is like, it really means nothing to me to have a queer character or an Asian character just for the sake of having a queer Asian character. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, whose interest is that serving, I think is the ultimate question. Like, is it making white and straight people feel, you know, not to be too snarky, but um, is it making white and straight people feel good about themselves that they can, you know, watch and enjoy a show with queer um, characters and, you know, tolerate it? Like, that to me is a very kind of limited view of what representation can and should look like. And I think it also leads to this problem that you're saying that um, it, attaches certain, or let me say it differently, it privileges certain kinds of queerness um, over others. Um, and that can be really demoralizing. Um, that can, you know, it can have the opposite effect of what we would want from representation. And moving more broadly, what do you feel like um, people can do to be better allies to LGBTQ people and people who are questioning their gender and their sexual orientations and 
you know, you can talk about how that applies to maybe family members, also friends, and like also mainstream media. Yeah, um, that's a tough question. So, and, and a very good one too. Um, and I think it's hard for me to answer just because um, sort of like we were talking about yesterday, um, it can be so difficult to um, generalize queer people's experiences and their kind of needs um, in the process of, you know, coming to an understanding of their gender or sexuality. So I think I'll hold on to that kind of breath um, when I'm giving this advice. Um, and these are, you know, not at all fully formed thoughts, but just kind of my initial reaction. But I think that um, what is critical is listening. Um, and that happens in many ways, listening to um, the labels and terms that people choose or don't choose to identify with and describe themselves with, um, respecting people's pronouns, um, respecting um, the ways in which they choose to um, present or not present um, their queerness. Um, and I think that this actually extends beyond allyship just for um, cis and straight people. We need to do better in queer spaces too um, when it comes to, for example, cis queer people um, respecting trans people's pronouns, for example. Um, so these are practices that we should be adopting, you know, everywhere and in all kinds of different contexts. And I think it all comes back to the principle of listening and not talking over people um, and always going in with the assumption and understanding that people know the best about their own bodies and identities and experiences um, and always taking that into account when um, referring to them, interacting with them, talking about them, um, the list goes on. Um, and I think that this is just something that um, I'm working on doing and I would encourage people to do um, especially, you know, within the queer community, um, as we are looking to show up for each other in better and stronger ways. Yeah, snaps to that. Um, honestly, yeah, I think it's crazy when we think about how our society has sort of conditioned us to perceive things in a very, very heteronormative way. And I think it's really critical for us to think about how, yeah, these very heteronormative structures and frameworks are so pervasive in, a, in our society. I think it's super infor important for us to break those down and, and just, yeah, like slowly break down and get rid of that that thinking that specific type of thinking absolutely um and i think that definitely applies to heteronormativity i think it also extends into cisnormativity um we can see the same kind of enforcement of categories of gender in spaces like bathrooms and in fact literally everywhere we are so I'm just deeply conditioned to use words like men and women um, as if those are natural distinctions um, and not social constructs. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think this, this sort of creation of the gender binary and also the enforcement of heteronormativity is, is quite literally everywhere, um, even without our realizing it um, from spaces um, like bathrooms to residential and living spaces um, to classrooms and all different kinds of other contexts. Um, it is like surrounding us everywhere we go. And so when we're talking about like deconstructing and dismantling these things, we're also talking about, you know, erasing them and breaking them down everywhere we sort of go and exist. 100%. Yeah. And I'm definitely doing a lot of learning right now from my peers. And I think the best thing, like you said, like each individual knows what's best for their own body, how they want to identify. So 
yeah, like don't be afraid of asking like someone's for someone's like pronouns and like abiding by that, right? Um, so looking forward, where do you personally plan on taking your LGBTQ um, slash QTPOC advocacy? And what are parts of your identity or your personal history that you're trying to learn more about uh, looking forward? I would say that I am trying to constantly look for broader meanings and definitions of what queer liberation looks like, um, should look like, and can look like. Um, and I've just been so inspired by um, the labor um, and the work of queer and trans Black people in this moment as we're thinking about the connections between anti-racism, um, the abolition of policing and prisons, anti-capitalism, anti-imperialism, um, and recognizing that all of these systems of, of domination um, are working together. They exist because they reinforce each other and are constantly thriving off one another. And so when we're talking about a goal um, like abolition, we can't do that without not only, you know, including, but also centering queer and trans people, um, Black queer and trans people. Um, and so, I think that when I'm thinking about my own goals in, in queer advocacy and organizing, I want to keep learning from those efforts and um, do what I can to support them. I think this goes back to um, people knowing what's best um, for them and for their communities. And I think that in this moment, um, so many sort of movements for liberation have already been established and are already emerging. And I think that it's my sort of um, personal goal um, to work in support of them and alongside them wherever I can. Um, and I think that's where um, solidarity is just so essential. And I think that this is, this is the moment um, and these are the um, spaces in which we can build true solidarity. And I know that you mentioned that you're still thinking about this, but in your eyes, what do you feel like, let's just say like is one, what do you feel like is one important goal that the, that is crucial to queer liberation? I think for me, and this is something that I'm still trying to um, educate myself on in both kind of theory and practice, um, but it's uh, anti-capitalism and, and thinking about what that can look like um, in kind of radical um, left spaces and radical queer spaces. Um, and I think that to return to, you know, the question about um, what's been difficult um, in sort of finding a, uh, finding a, you know, place um, in the queer community at Yale is the ways in which we just as Yale students are so kind of immersed in the logic of capitalism, you know, and so many um, Yale um, students and graduates um, will talk about you know, quote unquote, radical activism and practice, and then go into careers that are really like fundamentally based on the exploitation of working class people, um, many of whom are um, BIPOC and many of whom are queer. And so um, I think that one goal in terms of the um, movements that are emerging now, but also that have existed, you know, since the beginning of, you know, queer liberation and queer formations um, is anti-capitalism. And I'm really thinking about ways um, that I as an individual, but also I in the 
spaces that I kind of inhabit at Yale and beyond can work towards that end. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that definitely seems like a very, very big task. But I think there are certain ways that we can tackle that in our own lives. Um, And I definitely look forward to hearing more about how you plan on going about that in the future. Um, Yeah, so those are all the questions that I have prepared. Let's move on to the rapid fire questions, which I do with every guest on the podcast, basically so that the listeners can get to know you um, in a more lighthearted or just, just a different context. So are you ready for your rapid fire questions? Yes. Okay. First question. If a movie was made of your life, what genre would it be? Uh, romantic comedy. Okay, beautiful. Next, who is your favorite, or you can name several, uh, queer activist or icon? Um, I would say Audre Lorde, James Baldwin, um, and Urvashi Vade. Next, if you could bring back any fashion trend, what would it be? Hmm. Bootcut jeans. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that was a fault. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This one's a little bit of a serious one. What is one thing that you've learned about America during quarantine? Oh, so much. Um, <laughs> but that capitalism is failing. Period. And final question, if you were to say one thing to someone out there who is questioning their sexuality, what would you say to them? I would say do what feels right um, in terms of the labels that you use or don't use to describe yourself, in terms of the communities you surround yourself with, um, in terms of um, the sort of practices and experiences that feel right to you, um, do what feels right. That's great advice. And Avik, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Um, Before you go, are there any LGBTQ resources slash organizations slash readings that you'd like to promote? And also, if you're comfortable, where can people find you or reach out to you if they have any questions or want to touch base with you about anything you've mentioned in this episode? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So some organizations that I think are great and um, work specifically for um, and in the interests of um, queer South Asian people um, are the South Asian Queer and Trans Collective, um, which is based in New York. They do amazing work and they're also a fairly new organization. Um, also, the they see um, LGBTQ helpline for South Asians, which is just a great resource for um, South Asian queer people who are struggling with um, their um, racial and um, queer identities and, and, and the intersections of them, and also with any considerations of mental health and trauma. Um, and some readings that just have been like so formative for me as a brown queer person um, are Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde, which is an amazing text um, by the um, Black lesbian um, poet um, Audre Lorde. And Impossible Desires by Gayatri Gopinath, which is, um, you know, specifically about queer um, female identities um, in the South Asian diaspora. And Punk's Bull Daggers and Welfare Queens by Kathy Cohen, which is um, just a really classic text in queer studies. Um, and has just helped me think about, um, you know, broader visions of, of queer activism and liberation. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, I'll definitely put all of those into a Google document and um, add that to the episode description and to the homecoming uh, podcast 
social media platforms. And I know that when I was, when I was doing research for this episode too, I came across so many resources that like, it was just so overwhelming and made me so excited to learn more about the LGBTQ rights movement and, and, you know, like the experiences that QTPOC face. Um, so I'll add your resources and stuff that I found, put it all together um, so the listeners can access that and do their own research. Um, yeah, Avik, thank you so much for coming on to Homecoming. This was such a great episode. Like, I loved getting to know you better. And thank you so much for, you know, being willing to do this. I know that, like, this is such a sensitive topic, but um, yeah, you really, you really did so well. And like, thank you so much again. Thank you. Um, I really, really enjoyed this. And it was just such a it was a great experience, like being able to talk to you about all different kinds of topics and questions and, and issues. So thank you, Angel Rena, for just creating the space um, for Asian and Asian American and Pacific Islander folks. Um, and one thing that I forgot to mention, sorry, um, is that if people have any kind of questions or want to reach out to me about anything that we discussed today, you can um, DM me on Instagram. Um, my handle is at avicsarkar um, underscore underscore. Thank Absolutely. You. All right, people. Yep. You can reach out to Avic if you have any questions or if you want to talk to him about any issues that he brought up in this episode or, you know, like just anything else. Um, and yeah, I also just want to say that we definitely weren't able to cover like every single issue relating to LGBTQ people in this episode. And like that is completely impossible to do. But again, I think it's super important to continue to empower and celebrate and support all the queer people out there and just being consistent with that. So yeah, thank you so much, Avik. Thank you.